This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 43, the story of what may have been America's first stolen election. Ask anyone to list the Founding Fathers of the United States of America, and you'll get pretty much the same list of names. George Washington, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Samuel Adams, and of course, Alexander Hamilton, the only Founding Father with his own smash hit Broadway musical. One name that almost never makes the list, John Jay. Most people would be hard-pressed to name even one of his accomplishments. Things didn't have to be that way. In fact, there was a time when Jay had a path to the presidency. Had he made it to the White House, Jay's abolitionist views could have radically altered the course of history. But before he even got a shot at the nation's highest office, John Jay ran for governor of New York. And despite getting more votes than his opponent, Jay was declared the loser. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Like many of the founders, John Jay was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. His paternal grandfather, Augustus Jay, had established himself as a powerful merchant, trading in the most valuable commodity of the day, slaves. On his mother's side, his grandfather was a former mayor of New York City. When John Jay was born in 1745, he was as well positioned for success as any kid in North America. But even for the rich and powerful, life in the colonies could be brutal. Six years before John was born, a smallpox epidemic had hit the family hard. Three of the Jay children died, 
two lost their eyesight, and two more were left with intellectual disabilities. Growing up in that environment, John saw firsthand that money couldn't cure all problems. That perspective might be why he became the first person in his slave-trading family to openly argue against slavery. But in many ways, he took after his family. Like his father, John Jay was a dedicated Whig. The Whigs in the colonies were in favor of a strong parliament and opposed to direct democracy, which they saw as mob rule. After studying at King's College, Jay set up a private practice with his friend Robert Livingston, the son of an even more prominent family than the Jays. He was on his way to a solid career in public affairs. Jay had a dyed-in-the-wool Whig's belief in civility. Even in his personal life, he strove always to be respectable. And as the American colonies began to consider independence, Jay urged level-headedness and diplomacy. The same could not be said for another young man named George Clinton. Where the Jays were a long line of merchants, the Clintons were fighting men. While John Jay was studying at King's College, George Clinton was serving in the French and Indian War. By the war's end, he had attained the rank of lieutenant and gained glory by capturing a French vessel. When he returned to New York, he opened his own legal practice and soon became district attorney for Ulster County. George Clinton, already a seasoned war veteran, was vehemently anti-British. On that reputation, he won an election to the New York Assembly in 1768 at the age of 29. He was one of the few early patriots in the assembly, which was mostly full of loyalists. This put him in an interesting position. Two years later, in 1770, the New York Assembly imprisoned a member of the Sons of Liberty for seditious libel. That crime basically boiled down to criticizing the British monarchy. Taking a huge personal risk, Clinton defended the poor fellow in court. We can imagine his colleagues in the assembly weren't too keen on this, but Clinton found himself immensely popular among the growing patriot movement. By the early 1770s, revolution was starting to look inevitable. The First Continental Congress met in 1774 to figure out what to do. George Clinton wasn't chosen as one of New York's delegates, but 28-year-old John Jay was. As you might expect, Jay was a voice of moderation. He lobbied for peaceful negotiations with the British. All this talk of armed revolution was a danger to the future he was crafting for himself, and he had a lot to lose. Just a few months before he left for the Continental Congress, Jay had gotten married to Sarah Livingston, the daughter of New Jersey's governor, and a member of the same political dynasty as his bosom buddy from law school, Robert Livingston. The wedding created an unbreakable bond between the wealthy, ambitious young John Jay and the influential Livingstons. With so much on the line, Jay said no thank you to starting a war. But when the British fired the first shot at Lexington and Concord, Jay finally changed his mind. And once he was in for independence, he was all the way in. 
So was George Clinton. By the time the Second Continental Congress rolled around in 1775, he was appointed alongside Jay. For the first time, the two New York lawyers were in the same room and on the same side. Mind you, they still had their differences. George Clinton rarely spoke in the Congress. He eventually resigned to become a brigadier general and fight on the front lines. John Jay, on the other hand, decided to use his bureaucratic and legal skills to win the war. When arms shipments were delayed, Jay used political pressure to get them moving again. When officers started infighting over promotions, Jay straightened them out. He even served as a spymaster for George Washington. In 1777, with the revolution in full swing, John Jay and his old friend Robert Livingston drafted New York State's Constitution. Jay introduced a clause that would abolish slavery, but unfortunately, he was outvoted. As soon as New York had its Constitution, George Clinton, by now a war hero, was elected as the state's first independent governor. Clinton was still commanding troops out in the Hudson River Valley when he got the news. He was officially in office for 19 days before he could get back to the Capitol and take the oath. While the war was on, there were no real political parties or factions. They were all united in their goal of toppling the British. But all that changed when they started thinking about what would come next. The Constitutional Convention came together in May 1787, and everyone took sides pretty quickly. One faction, known as the Federalists, wanted a strong central government to bind the states together. The others, who simply became known as the Anti-Federalists, thought a national government would trample on the rights of states and individuals. John Jay wasn't at the Constitutional Convention, but if he was, he would have sided with his friends Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, who wanted a powerful federal government. Together, the three of them wrote an 85-part collection of essays called The Federalist Papers. Often cited in online discourse, yet rarely read in their entirety, the collection was meant to convince the state of New York to ratify the new U.S. Constitution. Not only did they succeed, But Jay's work impressed George Washington enough that in 1789, the first president offered him the choice of any cabinet position he wanted. Passing over the more high-profile positions like Secretary of State, Jay decided to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. In those first few years, the court spent most of its time figuring out basic policies and procedures. The Constitution had only just been ratified, and it barely gave any instructions on how the Supreme Court should operate. It was boring work, but it was crucial. The decisions made in Jay's court would influence the U.S. legal system forever. The 1780s panned out less well for George Clinton. As a prominent anti-federalist, he fought tooth and nail against the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. As we all know, his efforts failed, and he made himself plenty of enemies in the process. When Clinton was first elected governor in 1777, he was the young firebrand revolutionary. But that was over a decade earlier. By 1792, he was 53 years old, 
a five-term incumbent, and he was known for hating the Constitution. People were starting to get sick of him. If Clinton wasn't willing to change with the times, someone would have to replace him. And John Jay was the man to do it. Coming up, Jay and Clinton face off in the nastiest election New York had ever seen. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. In 1792, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court John Jay agreed to run for governor of New York. He was pitted against the five-term incumbent George Clinton. It was shaping up to be a heavyweight contest for the ages. Jay was a renowned Federalist and a close friend of Alexander Hamilton, the highly controversial Treasury Secretary. George Clinton was a former war hero and cantankerous anti-federalist who'd opposed the U.S. Constitution. At this point in history, even though there were two clear factions, there were no official political parties. Candidates usually didn't even directly campaign for office. With no debates or rallies, the campaign mostly took place in the press. Supporters of both candidates started writing to local newspapers under pseudonyms. Jay's Federalists had a habit of pretending to be former Clinton supporters who had seen the light and switched sides. Clinton, meanwhile, took aim at Jay's involvement in the abolition movement. Seven years back, Jay had founded the New York Manumission Society, which fought against the slave trade and promoted rights for free people of color. George Clinton himself had been a member of the Manumission Society at one point, but once his re-election was at stake, he had a change of heart. Abolition was a controversial issue, and on the national stage, anti-federalists like Thomas Jefferson were drumming up fears about how the federalists wanted to take away their slaves. Clinton and his supporters played right into those fears. Leaflets appeared all over New York, claiming that John Jay intended to free every slave in New York if he became governor. Jay's response was to lie low. He retired to his Westchester estate to wait out the election with his wife and children. He did answer occasional letters from voters, but he moderated his views on the slavery issue. In one response, he affirmed that every man has a natural right to freedom, but added that he believed the process of abolition should be gradual. It was a far cry from what he'd been preaching before the election. The more Jay tried to stay out of the way, the more his supporters had to do for the campaign. They hammered George Clinton on one issue in particular, land grants. The governor had been selling cheap state-owned land to his close personal friends. Most of these sales were more like gifts because the buyers were free to pay off the purchase over many years. These weren't little lots for personal homesteading and farming either. One particular land grant was bigger than the entire state of Connecticut. 
Jay's supporters handed out leaflets saying that Clinton was a corrupt fat cat who was parceling out all the land in New York to his friends. This contest wasn't just about Clinton versus Jay. It was politics as usual versus change. But even in 1792, politicians knew that the only thing scarier than the devil you know is the devil you don't know. Clinton's camp fought back by pushing the message that Jay was too different and too radical to be elected. Clinton was a man who knew how to do the job, which included getting New York's most desirable land into hands that could farm it or build on it. Jay, they argued, intended to free every enslaved person in New York, which meant plantations going under and fields laying fallow. Is that what anyone really wanted? Even Clinton knew how desperate that argument sounded. If he wanted to win, his supporters needed to bring out the big guns. Lucky for them, they had one particularly big gun, Robert Livingston. John Jay's oldest friend, former law partner, cousin-in-law, and godfather of his children. It's hard to overstate how close these two men were. Some of their letters are so effuse with adoration, they sound more like the notebook than the Federalist Papers. But over the years, politics had driven a wedge between them. Livingston was an anti-Federalist, while Jay was a staunch Federalist. In 1791, Livingston had convinced his prominent and powerful family to defect en masse from the Federalists and join him on the other side. This, of course, included John Jay's own in-laws. This put some cracks in the friendship, to be sure, but it's still surprising how bitter things got the next year. During the election for governor, Livingston publicly declared his allegiance to George Clinton over his old friend Jay, as expected. And then he picked up his pen and put their 30-year unspoken grudge to paper. Livingston wrote about Jay in such scornful terms, you'd be hard-pressed to find a nastier attack ad today. He accused his former friend of having an inferior intellect, of making no meaningful contributions to the state constitution they drafted together, and of being an aspiring monarch, among other faults. One letter addressed to Jay read, quote, Your cold heart graduated like a thermometer, finds the freezing point nearest the bulb. Jay refrained from responding, at least in public. One has to imagine that the betrayal wounded him deeply. But as the April election date drew closer, it still looked like Jay's side was winning. Then came an October surprise. Well, a March surprise in this case. The stock market took a dive, and the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, William Dewar, took the blame. Dewar liked taking big bets on the market, and he funded them with loans. He borrowed from virtually every lender in New York, and when the market dipped, Dewar went bankrupt, defaulted on all his loans, and set off a domino effect that hurt the whole New York banking system. William Dewar happened to be an old friend of Jay's. He also reported directly to Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. 
You can imagine how much undecided voters liked that revelation. The anti-federalists had been saying all along that Hamilton and his cronies were a bunch of elitists whose banks and stock markets would cripple the common people. Up until now, many people had dismissed this as politically motivated paranoia. But when the assistant treasury secretary single-handedly crashed the New York economy, it started to look like the anti-federalists were onto something. There's no reason to believe John Jay or even Hamilton knew anything about William Dewar's scheme. But in the public imagination, all the Federalists were the same. Jay's support plummeted. Even after the stock market scandal, it wasn't immediately clear which way the governor's race would swing. There was no election day at the time, Voters had about a week in April to go to the polls. There were also no live ballot counts tabulated on CNN, of course. So candidates had to wait several weeks after the voting was over to figure out who won. Paper ballots were collected by local inspectors and sealed in envelopes. Inspectors handed them off to their local sheriffs, and the sheriffs delivered them to the Secretary of State in New York City. Then, a committee of 12 members of the New York legislature, called the Canvassers, would open the sealed envelopes, remove the ballots, and count them by hand. This count was slated to happen on the final Tuesday in May. Of course, with the ballots passing through so many hands, some news leaked before the official count took place. By early May, rumor had it that Otsego County had broken so heavily for Jay it might swing the entire election in his favor. Jay barely had a chance to digest that news before another piece of gossip reached him. Clinton was trying to disqualify every ballot cast in Otsego County on a technicality. Clinton had a point. The ballots had not technically been delivered by a sheriff as the procedure required. The previous Otsego County Sheriff had resigned, and there had been a bureaucratic delay in getting the new sheriff formally deputized, so the former sheriff delivered the ballots instead. It was splitting hairs, but it was the law. And it might just be enough to give Clinton another term as governor. We'll look at the results of the election right after this. Now back to the story. Before the results of the 1792 New York governor's race had even been tabulated, they were already being contested. Between the voting and the ballot counting in early May, a rumor swirled that incumbent George Clinton was planning to disqualify an entire county's votes on a technicality, a county that had voted heavily for his opponent, John Jay. On its face, the procedural hiccup seemed ridiculous. The law required that a sheriff deliver the ballots to the Capitol, and at the time of the election, Otsego County didn't have a sheriff. If the recently resigned former sheriff couldn't do it, how were they even supposed to vote? Clinton's supporters, on the other hand, didn't think the issue was as innocent as it seemed. The Otsego County Sheriff, who was rumored to be a Jay supporter, had resigned to take a new post as township supervisor. He'd acted in both his new role and his former role during the election, which made him responsible for receiving and delivering the ballots. This would have given him the opportunity to tamper with votes, 
possibly explaining why Jay won the county by a shocking 400-vote margin. Bear in mind, there were only about 18,000 total voters in the entire state. Most of New York's counties were rumored to have voted for Clinton. But Otsego County had enough pro-Jay voters to swing the election. Unless, of course, their ballots weren't counted. The actual counting of the ballots fell to a committee of canvassers in the legislature. The majority of the committee members were Clinton supporters. Not surprising since he was a 14-year incumbent. To the Jay faction, it looked like the whole plan to throw out the ballots was politically motivated. The committee did attempt to keep up appearances, at least. There were two other counties where the votes hadn't been delivered by the sheriff, Tioga and Clinton. Both of these two counties had voted for George Clinton. So if their votes were thrown out on the same minor technicality, it seemed like fair play. To Clinton's faction, at least. Tioga and Clinton counties had voted for the incumbent, but not nearly as heavily as Otsego voted for Jay. If all three counties were disqualified, it would still be enough to dismantle Jay's narrow lead and hand George Clinton a win. Still trying to keep up appearances, the committee threw the question to the state senators, Rufus King, a Federalist, and Aaron Burr, an Anti-Federalist. Unsurprisingly, their opinions were divided, too. King thought all the ballots should be counted, and Burr thought they should be thrown out. The committee heard its share of unsolicited opinions, too. Alexander Hamilton, who supported Jay, sent letters urging the canvassers to count all of the ballots. The Livingston family lobbied on behalf of Clinton. Even Thomas Jefferson commented, surprisingly taking Jay's side, even though they were political opponents. Everyone had their own political arguments here, but it really boiled down to the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Jay's supporters claimed that Governor Clinton was silencing the voices of voters. Clinton had been in office since the very first state election in 1777. It looked like he was grasping at straws to keep himself in power, a dictator in the making. On Clinton's side, they framed it as a simple issue of protocol. If the disputed counties wanted to vote, they should have followed the rules. There was no legal precedent for dealing with this kind of issue. A few attorneys floated ideas for a lawsuit, claiming that throwing out the votes violated voters' constitutional rights. But this seemed like a moonshot at best. As Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Jay had a pretty good idea of how the other judges would vote, and he didn't think they'd rule in his favor. As for the idea of calling a new election, Again, there was no precedent for such drastic action. And in 1792, it would be difficult, borderline impossible to do. It would be hard enough to get the word out to all eligible voters in a timely fashion, especially since not all of the electorate was literate. Then the voting itself would take at least a week, and local sheriffs would once again have to physically ride to the state capitol carrying the sealed ballots, and once again, 12 legislators would be appointed to count them by hand. 
The governor's term was about to expire already, and if the new election wasn't settled in time, nobody knew who was supposed to serve as governor. So this idea would cause more problems than it solved. Eventually, the dust settled and the canvassers voted. Since the canvassers, as we mentioned, were mostly Clinton supporters, the results were unsurprising. The ballots from Otsego, Tioga, and Clinton counties were all disqualified. The final tally of counted ballots was 8,440 to 8,332 in Clinton's favor. The incumbent won by just 108 votes. Since the disqualified ballots weren't officially counted, we don't know exactly how many votes were actually cast for each candidate. But it's estimated that the full tally would have shown Jay winning by between 250 and 400 votes. That's about a 2% margin, which isn't nothing. Jay's supporters were outraged. They demanded that Jay contest the election. Signs were erected in Federalist neighborhoods proclaiming Jay governor by voice of the people. Clinton supporters fought back. There were at least two public brawls and one duel fought over the election. Jay couldn't even ride his horse down the banks of the Hudson without being joined by hundreds of supporters cheering and shouting for justice. They made it clear that if Jay wanted a mob to march to New York City and physically throw Clinton out of office, they were willing to do just that. But Jay, always a temperate man, did not want mob rule. In fact, that was his worst fear. He'd worked for his entire political career to establish order and reason rather than chaos and dysfunction. He couldn't betray those values now, not out of sheer self-interest, especially not when the whole issue rode on the kind of procedural law he'd spent his whole career working to craft. After the unexpectedly nasty election, Jay was more than a little burned out and disillusioned. He couldn't muster up the enthusiasm to create an entire new legal theory to contest the race. He quietly went back to work on the Supreme Court, and George Clinton served another term. But that wasn't the end of the story. No one forgot how Clinton had won the election. From then on, his detractors called him the usurper. In the next spring state election, Clinton supporters were thrown out of the legislature en masse and replaced by Federalists. Seeing the writing on the wall, Clinton stepped down in 1795 and declined to seek another term. John Jay ran again in 1795, and this time he won. It was a long-awaited victory for the Federalists. Jay served for two terms until 1801, when he retired from politics at the age of 56. After his retirement, the governorship once again went to George Clinton. It was a surprising comeback for the 62-year-old supposed retiree. But once he was back, he was back. Clinton served one term as governor, and in 1804, he stepped down to run for the vice presidency under Thomas Jefferson, although that had less to do with his merits and more to do with his lack of them. 
During Jefferson's first term as president, his VP was Aaron Burr. Regular listeners will remember that this pairing didn't work out so well. By re-election time in 1804, Burr was wanted in New York on murder charges after killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Thomas Jefferson had to look for a new running mate, someone who was popular, well-liked, and would just sit there and shut up once the election was over. 65-year-old George Clinton fit the bill. Clinton proved a singularly ineffective vice president. He never even bothered to learn the rules of the Senate. Though his reputation as a war hero brought him some goodwill, some of his Senate colleagues complained that he would occasionally declare a vote complete when nobody had voted yet. But amazingly, he held on to the vice presidency just as well as he'd held on to the governorship. He served under both Jefferson and his successor, James Madison, until he died in office in 1812. As for John Jay, his 1801 retirement was permanent. He seemed to have just run out of steam for his political ambitions. Before the 1792 governor election, there were whispers that he might make a run for the presidency someday. That momentum disappeared the moment he lost to George Clinton. Things might have been different if he'd been able to ride the wave of enthusiasm after the stolen election. But Jay chose stability for a newborn republic over his own political interests and paid the price. The lack of wind in his career might have had as much to do with the national political tides as it did with Jay on a personal level. The Federalist Party lost steam fast in the 1790s, and by 1800, they were all but done for. Jay was the first and last Federalist governor New York ever had. Jay did pick up a few electoral votes in the 1800 presidential election. Those were protest votes from electors who didn't like the actual Federalist candidate, John Adams. But it points to something interesting. If Jay had stuck around or tried to make a run for president, he might have had enough support to win. Considering his lifelong abolitionist views, a Jay presidency might have changed the course of American history. If he'd pushed for an end to slavery in 1800, the Civil War might have been avoided. Or it might have happened a few decades early. Or perhaps he would have toned down his rhetoric like he did in the 1792 election, and even as president, faded into the background of history. John Jay is sometimes described as the forgotten founding father. He was an effective bureaucrat rather than a valiant soldier. He's perhaps the least likely person to end up on our list of political scandals. But he did teach us one important lesson. If the law says a sheriff must carry the ballots to the state capitol, then you'd better make damn sure the person carrying the ballots is actually a sheriff. As the saying goes, the devil is in the details. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 42, the story of unsuccessful Supreme Court nominee Harold Carswell. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream political scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type political scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>